Hello, and welcome to a special Vegas Gang episode. This is your chance to meet the people that bring you the show itself. Today, we have Dr. Dave Schwartz, director for the Center for Gaming Research at UNLV. Hope you enjoy. Who are you? Uh, my name is Dave Schwartz, and I direct the Center for Gaming Research at UNLV, and I follow as much about Las Vegas and the casino industry as I possibly can. Um, if I'm correct, you grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Is that right? That is – yeah, that is correct. So uh, if, if my memory serves, um, gaming was legalized in Atlantic City, what, like 1979, something in that region? 76. 76. The, first, the first casino opened in 78. Okay. So given, um, given your age, I would assume that growing up there in that time period, it, it sort of you, – you kind of grew up with the casinos in, in, in a way. I mean they you – know, you're not all that much older than, than, uh, than they were. Is that about right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, I can vaguely remember my grandfather having chips from the play dates at resorts and the Golden Nugget when they so he was there when they opened. That was seventy eight and eighty. So I kind of vaguely remember that, and I also really vaguely remember Atlantic City before the casinos, which I guess would have been when I was about four and five, and it was pretty. I just remember being pretty slow. Yeah, <laughs> pretty moribund. So even in even in that young age, you can sort of remember what that transition was like, uh, as far as you know the sort of vitality and energy of the town. Yeah, it went way up, and kind of, I guess one of the other really early formative images I had was them blowing up a lot of the older hotels, the classic old hotels, and replacing them with these big, kind of ugly concrete and and reflective glass monstrosities. <laughs> you know, probably my favorite example of that is. Valleys, which if you look at what it used to be, the Marlboro Blenheim was a beautiful building, you know, classic, built around 1900. Thomas Edison designed the concrete oh, wow. system, which was really, and it was by William, the architect was William Lightfoot Price, who was a pretty big architect back then. This was great building, beautiful. And uh, they blew it up and ended up building that hideous pink glass tower that Bally's Atlantic City has. Right. So I always kind of had this, uh, you know, destruction, create, creation thing going on with the casino industry. Do you, and maybe you talk to family about this kind of thing, but do you remember what, what it was like as far as, was the town excited about gambling coming along? Were people um, worried, complaining, dreading it? Uh, what was sort of the sentiment after the state decided to approve it for for that area people were really excited you know everyone i know was 100 percent behind it because basically the city had just fallen so far and was in such bad shape that we really figured this was going to put us over the top and uh let us bring those glory days back and it's kind of interesting you know growing up there it was just it was kind of like growing up in the city of rome around 700 a.d because you just have this feeling of being in this empire that has fallen already hmm. and you're surrounded you know every restaurant you go into has signed pictures of jimmy durante and you know people from that era mm -hmm. and it's not really 
happening now, you know, just that feeling that the best days are behind you, right. which is disturbing to me because that's what I'm feeling more and more like in Vegas every day, that Uh-oh. same feeling that, you know, yeah, we've, we kind of reached the high water mark and we're gracefully or not so gracefully going back down to low tide. Well, I definitely want to talk about more about Las Vegas later, but yeah. focusing on on Atlantic City a little bit more. I mean, as you're growing up there, uh, is it the kind of thing where, as a maybe as a high school student or people in that in that age bracket uh, that were having summer jobs in casinos or doing internships and that sort of thing, or was it um, you know more closed off for folks that were sort of under that nominal working age? No, it was it was really pretty open. You know, I have kind of a unique circumstance. My dad, Sonny, was a local journalist and wrote for the Atlantic City Press for many years and later had a radio show. And he was always very well connected with everybody in town there. So kind of we knew all, you know, he knew all the executives. We knew everybody. I went to pretty much every heavyweight boxing match that was held in the 80s, and there was a lot of good ones, mm. um, you know, got press passes of them. So kind of grew up with that kind of surrounded by that. So kind of in the industry in that way and being around it. So, you know, no, I always felt really, you know, kind of like I had front row seats to it. Nice. Um, so you're growing up, you're matriculating. And then if I'm right, you go and, uh, go to study, uh, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, nearby. Right. So you sort of stayed in the, in the general area. Yeah, I, I ended up at Penn in Philly, which is pretty good. It's about an hour and a half uh, train ride away. So I ended up there mm-hmm. and uh, didn't study anything specific to casinos at all. And, you know, didn't really know what, what I wanted to do, except I was always, you know, did pretty well at school and did pretty well at taking tests. So I kind of like that. And that's how I kind of fell into graduate school almost by accident. <laughs> was um, was there any impact on it? I'm, I'm curious what the impact was on um – uh, Philadelphia as Atlantic City began to rise uh, in its gaming fortunes. I mean, is it the kind of thing where people in, in Philly on the weekend would say, oh, yeah, let's go, to, let's go out to the shore this, this weekend and spend some time there? I mean, was it a constant topic? Yeah, but I think that that was really going back to what it had been before, you know, back in the, you know, going back to the 19th century, even middle class families from Philly would take their two weeks of vacation and rent uh you know, a, a summer house or a cottage down in Atlantic City. So really it was just kind of taking that and compressing that. And, you know, while they're taking their week-long vacation or two-week vacation, the Bahamas or wherever they're going in the Caribbean or Florida, they'll still, you know, now they'll just go down to the shore for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's always been part of the ecosystem there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're in school and then you uh, decide to go for your master's. Do you do that right away or is there any time sort of in between? Yeah, no, I was I, – I think it was in my senior year, fall semester of my senior year where I figured that I had enough credits to either submatriculate and also get a, graduate with a master's degree or oh, okay. leave early. So ah. I figured, uh, you know, I'll just go and I still – I had – for whatever reason, I remember I had enough – I had to take enough classes that leaving a semester early wasn't really going to be viable. So I'm like, eh, I'll just take a couple extra classes and get the master's degree. Mm-hmm. So then once once you're done, do you go back to Atlantic City or uh, what happens next? I've been going back and forth. The summer okay. – first of all, I had been working in and around the boardwalk for a while. In high school, a couple summers, I was 
working for the peanut shop, first <laughs> as a roaster and stock boy and then a cashier and then my big break when I got to play Mr. Peanut. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, you know, being in the Atlantic City boardwalk, shaking hands with people for eight hours a day, I've never been more thankful for <laughs> white gloves than that because, oh boy. And that was, re- you know, that was really a learning, that was really a learning opportunity doing that job because you just see how people react to a giant peanut it's kind of funny. I mean, it's just really hysterical. Um, People harassing you at all with little I, yeah, punk, I was, I was, punk teenagers I was, and whatnot. Yeah, I was groped several times. Oh man! <laughs> um, unfortunately, the shell didn't come all the way down. So yeah, I, I was groped. Um, some some kids would be attracted. You know, some little uh, three and four year olds would just be attracted and want to blast you in the package because that was funny. So it was kind of it was a real experience. It was a real experience. You know, being out there and doing that, but it was a lot of fun. And at some point, you actually worked in a couple, at least one of these casinos. Is that right? Yeah. um, I worked for a while. This was even before the Mr. Peanut thing. For a while, I had a job at Bally's Grand, which was originally the Golden Nugget, then became Bally's Grand, then the Grand, then the Hilton, and uh, now is just uh, ACH. It doesn't have a name. Right. Um, Worked in the ice cream parlor there for a little while, which was kind of fun, and... Then I got a job the summer before my senior year. I decided to go all out and got a job in casino security at the Trump Taj Mahal, which at the time, this is 94, was the newest and I think still biggest casino in the city. So mm-hmm. it was still a pretty exciting place. So what was that like? Any, uh, you know, what was it like working there at that time? And I'm, any memorable stories? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that job in particular, you come into contact with all, all shapes and sizes. Yeah, it was a real education. You know, it really was. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was probably one of the more fun jobs I had. A lot of times it was really tedious, but it was just really great working with everybody and it being in swing shift. There's a lot of camaraderie there and we'd all go out, you know, drinking uh, after work because you get off work at 11 and you're still pretty keyed up. So mm-hmm. everybody goes out together. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, I just had a real ball. And, you know, I think I saw a lot of how people just how people like to act in casinos uh-huh. and what goes on there so i think that's kind of today you know several years later that's my biggest takeaway but it's just also kind of understanding what's going on and how a casino is a bunch of people and each of them kind of are doing different things and they all just happen to be in the same building do you go back to the Taj Mahal ever? And I'm just curious how you, how it seems in terms of then when it was brand new and now obviously it's had some tough times in the past whatever 15 years or however long it's been. Yeah. Um, what, what do you what does it feel like when you go back? It feels weird. I still keep up with people with a couple of people I knew there, so I'm still in touch with them. But I think the last time I went back might have been two years ago, and it was when they were just doing that big revamp that they did when they built the Chairman Tower. Uh-huh. And it was kind of cool. I was glad to see they got that that pink carpet out of there because that is just etched in my brain from having <laughs> to stare at that for so long. And um, it's, it was kind of interesting to see. But the, the hard thing is, is coming out to Vegas and then going back there, you just see how it's totally apples and oranges. It's just a totally different scenario. <laughs> what was the first time you came to Las Vegas? First time I came to Vegas was, I'm pretty sure, February of 1997 because New York, New York had just opened. Uh-huh. And that's getting ahead to grad school, which we can jump to now, or we can. Yeah. So, so you yeah. make your you make your way out to California, 
Um, and and so what what happens next? Yeah, you know, I didn't really plan ahead for graduate school that well. It was, I think, in the spring semester of my senior year where I'm trying to figure out what, what I want to do. And I saw a flyer for, hey, apply to graduate school and get everything paid for and you'll get a fellowship and it'll be wonderful. And you get to basically, we'll pay you to learn how to be a professor. I'm like, well, that sounds like the, like the life for me. So I applied to four schools kind of not totally at random. I had good rationales because they're all good schools. But what I didn't do was go and research and find out which professors were working there and try uh-huh. to identify somebody who I wanted to be my mentor, which right. is what later learned you're supposed to do. So <laughs> totally did it, did it absolutely the wrong way, but still somehow got accepted to UCLA and went out there. And kind of one of the reasons why I did was growing up in Atlantic City, it's very tempting just to go to work in the casinos because it's a pretty good job. It's a really fun job. Right. And if you're dealing or something like that, it pays pretty well. Right. And a lot of my friends from high school kind of gave me crap about you know, wanting to go to college because like, you know what? My first year, I'm going to make more money than a doctor makes after you know, seven years of medical school or whatever. Right. It's like, yeah, you know, and I kind of – I appreciate why people would do that. But I think – what happened was that I saw guys in their 40s and 50s who were working grave shift and, you know, having to call in on the radio and ask permission to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, you know what? I don't <laughs> want to be doing this. This is awesome now. And I, I love to do it. And I kind of love the partying and everything. But I don't think I want to be doing this 30 years from now and asking somebody for, you know, can I – can you send someone over so I can take a personal break so I can go to the bathroom? Right. So it's like the, the little things like that. So I decided I wanted to go to grad school with the idea that, all right, this is going to be – your ticket out of working in a casino, you know, and another thing is there's a temptation to think, well, because I've gone to college and done pretty well there, I'm not going to end up just stuck working in a casino at some dead end job. Right. But, you know, no, the one thing I learned actually working in a casino is that that is really plan A for nobody. Hmm. Like I worked with a lot of really bright people and a lot of them were better educated than me who were there and <laughs> were there just because they got, you know, stuck there because of family reasons or whatever. And you realize like, yeah, this, if you don't do something, this is going to be you. You know, uh-huh. Nobody's going to come and open up the future for you. So I decided to apply to grad school, got in, and again, kind of went out there with the idea of, right, this is going to be my ticket out of working in a casino for the rest of my life. Um, at, while I was at grad school at UCLA, learned that you have to write something called a dissertation, you know, right. which is basically a book, and was looking around for something to write about and I don't know how, but I said, well, you know, instead of doing something about the Civil War or labor history and the Gilded Age or whatever, I think I'd like to write about casinos because I've read a little bit of the very meager academic stuff about casinos and it just seemed to have a lot of holes in it. So I said, well, this is someplace where I can contribute that, that other people aren't contributing. But th- this ends up being a, a pretty major decision in your life, right? I mean, it, in some ways, could you, could you argue that you can trace your trajectory off of that decision? Yeah, I think in retrospect, yeah. Um, but I could have just written a dissertation about something not Vegas-related and probably gone into the queue trying to get a job uh, at an academic university with everybody else and from my time on the job because I did go in the job market I don't know what you know I'd probably be doing like still be doing adjunct stuff 10 years later Mm -hmm. and not getting along very far so yeah on one hand I 
I kind of chose that trajectory. Well, you know, yeah, I'm not going to become the chair of the history department at Princeton and, you know, president of the AHA. And the other one, you know, well, I'm not going to get stuck doing adjunct work at a community college somewhere for the next 20 years because there's no tenured positions available or, you know, that I'm, <laughs> that I can get. So it was kind of, kind of, that was that decision, but then it was later confirmed by going on the job market. Right. Okay, so I want to talk about your dissertation, but before we do, I want to skip back to that first trip to Las Vegas and just mm-hmm. what you thought about the city. I mean, you obviously had grown up in a casino town, that, uh, and then you come to Las Vegas, and you know what, what was it like? What did you think? What were your impressions? I'll tell you this. The first time I walked into a casino floor in Vegas, which I'm pretty sure is New York, New York, because I think I just I wanted to see the newest place, and that had been in the news down in L.A., you know, Parked in that garage, walked over, stepped in that floor, just heard the sound of the slot machines, and something in my brain just said, you are home. Really? This, yeah. It's just this deep emotional thing. You know, Having spent so much time on the casino floor, there's just something that I like that sound. I like the yeah. energy, and I just feel like I'm at home. So it's like, you know, this is – you you never left. You're still there. And I think that's what shaped in my dissertation the chapter I wrote called The Casino Archipelago was kind of based on that. Like, yeah, there's a bunch of little different casinos everywhere, but it's really one big casino floor. And they're all kind of alike, you know, besides the superficial differences. Right. Because it just it, it feels the same to me. And like, you know, even to this day, I just get a different there's just a different kind of energy walking around a casino for me. Just because yeah. I don't I don't know what it is, but it's something really I can't explain. Well, I can certainly relate to that. Uh, as far as that, that energy. And, you know, people ask me all the time when I kind of explain to them some of my, uh, some of the, some of the ways that I spend my time. Uh, and they say, oh, well, you, you must be some kind of crazy gambler. That's their assumption that when you tell them that, oh, well, I have, you know, I do all this stuff related mm-hmm. to Las Vegas. Like, oh, you must be some kind of crazy, you must love gambling. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> gambling is fun. I don't dislike gambling. I mean, I have a great time doing it, but that's not, the really the main attraction for me, I, I very much remember being sucked in by just that energy that is I think hard to kind of articulate, but when you feel it, you you know it, and and it sort of sounds like that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, because for me, working in a casino was a feeling that when I go to work today, anything could happen. You know, maybe. I'll get accidentally pepper sprayed because the crowd control <laughs> thing goes wrong. Maybe somebody's going to tip me a hundred bucks because they're having a great day and want me to be happy and want to share their joy. You know, so it's like that can, you know, like pretty much everything, everything, uh, it's like that whole gamut of stuff or range of stuff can happen. So that's right. what I really like. And that, that, to me, that, I don't know. I just like that idea of chance and anything can happen you know even though it's usually pretty tedious and ponderous and you're just sitting there at a post or carrying chips out or later doing surveillance which i'll talk about after i talk about my my grad school stuff you know it can be pretty tedious but there's also that chance that anything can happen which is what i think that that's what attracts me i think yeah well let's talk about your dissertation um which ended up eventually being being published and um some of the listeners may have may have read so why don't you tell us about it and um sort of what it covers and then i'm also uh would love to hear about the process of putting it together yeah it was kind of a tough process and it was really hard to 
kind of find a way in, you know, because I had this idea that I wanted to write about gaming, but I didn't have a mentor, uh, a, ch- a dissertation advisor, which in the in history, at least, this is a very important position. They pretty much direct your dissertation, they chair your committee, and you kind of have to have somebody who you get along with. And it was a little while before I found somebody, um, that was Eric Munkinen, who was one of the really premier urban historians in this country, if not the world. I mean, just really, I'd, I'd read his stuff before I started working with him, and just working with him, he was really a great person. And I couldn't think of anybody who would have been a better chair. Just completely laid back, totally let me be self-directed, you know, not one of those people who's going to micromanage mm-hmm. and just, just awesome and just really encouraging. And, you know, in academia, studying gambling is considered really lightweight stuff. You is know, it? if, yeah, I mean, almost beneath contempt. Really? You know, it's like, yeah, it's, if you want, you know, if you want to do serious work, you're going to do kind of the, the heavyweight, the super heavyweight division of, of American history is people doing colonial and revolutionary revolutionary era intellectual history Hmm. so the kind of stuff that if you remember uh goodwill hunting yeah when he's name dropping those u.s historians Uh in the bar scene with the guy right that kind of stuff so So being able to explain that to me why 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 is that what's what's that stratification where does that come from well because it's more prestigious because you're looking at stuff number one if you're doing you know if you're looking at the kind of stuff that say edmund morgan's looking at or you know lemon and henretta and all them or Joyce Appleby, who was one of the folks who taught at UCLA and who chaired my um, first the first seminar I took, which was absolutely terrifying. Um, th- th- you know that they're looking at stuff that very intelligent people wrote. It's kind of long removed in time, so it's not as accessible. Right. So it's a it's a lot. There's a lot of heavy lifting involved in that, and it's pretty good stuff. And there's also generation after generation of scholarship that you're responding to. So you know uh-huh. if you're going to be saying something new about uh, John Winthrop's writings, you've got a lot of people in that conversation. Right. Whereas opposed to if you're saying something new about casinos, there's not so many people in that conversation. So I, I think it's why. You know, I, I understand it and I really do like like that that kind of work. But um it's you know, doing casinos is a totally different thing because it's seen as being kind of you can take it in a couple different directions, which is what I liked about it. There's an element of crime and criminal justice because gambling's been illegal for a long time. Right. The way I took it was more urban history and trying to look at how casinos figured into to Las Vegas and to America right. and the urban development. But there's also all kinds of cultural places. Obviously, economics and business history is another place you can take it. So there, there's a lot of different ways in, but it's really something that not so many people are studying. So there's not that canon of literature that you can respond to. And it's not quite as easy to to, you know, check a box and say, this is what I do. You know, when I, when I was applying for jobs teaching U.S. history, and this was basically looking for a job where I would just be teaching tenure track U.S. history, teaching the survey courses and whatever, a couple mm-hmm. of higher division, it was really hard, you know, because I'd say in my, in my application letters, you know, like, yeah, I focused in this, but I can also teach urban history and crime history and cultural history, kind of a grab bag of stuff. And it's like having a little foot in each of them, but not being an, an expert in any of them. Interesting. So, Suburban Xanadu, you're, uh, how, how, how long did it take to put that together? It took a while. It was interrupted in 98, the summer of 1998. My dad got sick, and I left graduate school, moved back to Atlantic City so I could be with him. 
and my mom and ended up actually working at the Taj again because I needed a job because I, you know, obviously you can't live indefinitely without working. So yeah, I left grad school. I think it was uh, like July of 1998, moved back to Atlantic City, started working there again, which um, was kind of funny because when I left, I'm like, hey guys, I love you all. I'm never going to see you again. I'm, you know, I'm going to grad school and I'm going to have a great job as a tenured professor somewhere and right. you know, bye everybody. So yeah, the, the, so the second time I came back and um, really appreciate kind of this really showed me, I think, you know, what you can ask for in friends because the people I worked with there were just so supportive of me and, you know, going through some really rough times there in a way that I've got to say, honestly, the folks I knew in academia weren't. And, you know, even though they were, you know, they'd have kind of more conceptual things to talk about. They just weren't there in that same human level. Right. I found. So um, after a couple months, my dad passed away. And so I spent a couple, some more time there with my mom trying to get everything in order. And eventually in January of 99, I made the decision to go back to UCLA and get back, go back into grad school and finish the dissertation. You know, in the summer of 98, I'd finished all my coursework because I'd submatriculated. So I'd, I'd got gone through that uh-huh. pretty rapidly. I'd picked out my dissertation topic. I had my advisor and was just about to get into it when that happened right. and, I, and I had to leave school. So um, it was kind of tough. So obviously yeah, sure. coming back from that isn't easy. So I did. Came back in January of 99, and a year later, I was done. Because basically that whole year, I had the mentality that within a year, I'm going to give myself a year. At the end of this year, I'm either going to be dead or I'll have my dissertation done. One or the other. It's mm-hmm. like, there's, there's no third alternative. I'm not going to do it. Because <laughs> a lot of people who went, who, you know, faced less, you know, fewer challenges never got their degree. And, you know, when you go to grad school, you realize how many people are just kind of hanging around the history department or wherever 10 years later, still working in the dissertation. It's like, yeah. you know, I can't afford to do that. I'm going to have to get a job. I, you know, I didn't have, I did not have a fellowship there. Um, so it's like, well, I can't keep on working, uh, you know, full-time, part-time jobs and doing this. So right. I just thought it would be real focused and, and, and finished it. So I came up to UNLV to, to do a lot of my research at the Special Collections, which had the uh, gaming center there as well. So I did a lot of my research there, um, which was my introduction to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's really, it's kind of a blur. It's a lot of just sitting at the computer and writing. You know, basically what I would do is I would go up to Vegas on a... Tuesday morning, because Special Collections was open to 9 to 9 on Tuesday, you know, leave L.A., try to get out of here around 5 in the morning, uh-huh. drive up there, hit the Silverton's two ninety nine breakfast buffet <laughs> um, sometime around 6.30 by the time I got up here, or not 6.30, like 9.30 or so by the time I got up here, hit that, so totally food out there, and that would be my food for the day, <laughs> and uh, find a place to stay, you know, for about 25, 30 bucks, which I stayed at the Continental, a couple of places. Probably the most interesting was the, was the Continental. Yeah. So stay there. And basically, so my whole Vegas thing was about like 30, 35 bucks a day. Wow. Because the breakfast buffet was pretty much my food for the day. Yeah. Sometimes I'd stop and get myself a taco or something after nine and the place is closed. So pretty much come up there for like two or three days, really hate it intensely, and then come back with all my primary resources and then type, type, type and work. So that was pretty much it for 99 for me. So... That's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. 
So you finish your dissertation. Your degree is conferred. You are now Dr. Dave. Um, what happens next? Well, I kind of realized it's kind of like uh, Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote, where Wiley Coyote's <laughs> chasing the Roadrunner and suddenly realizes he's, he's not on the cliff anymore. He's over air and kind of looks around and then falls. It's like, you know, I was so intent on finishing that dissertation and being like, yeah, this is really important. I did not do anything to try to apply for an academic job or, you know, go on a job search, which usually what you do is you apply to places by sometime around October in January, the American Historical Association meets. And if you're lucky enough, you get an in-person interview. Then they ask you back to campus later on and they make their decision, I think sometime in May and you start in September. Um, didn't do any of that just because I had this foolish idea that, you know what, if I just work hard, everything will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. So basically I'm in a situation where I'm either going to stay out in LA with no health insurance and work, like try to find adjunct work somewhere or do the other job I did, which I really, and I had a bunch of jobs in LA, which, and some of them were cooler than others. <laughs> kind of one of the more fun ones I had was working for the Princeton Review and teaching SAT prep. Oh, really? To, yeah. It was, it was an awesome job because basically you're teaching you, – you, you don't have any grades to give, so you don't have any stick to beat the kids with. Right. But you have to somehow keep their attention after they've already been in school all day right. and really don't have any interest in what you're doing. So I kind of developed a lot of my teaching persona doing that because you learn really quickly how to keep people's attention when you know, they've been in school all day and – you can't threaten them with an F if they goof around. Right. So I think that was a really good teaching experience um, doing that. You know, but it didn't really – wasn't the kind of thing that you could do comfortably <laughs> and survive on. Right. So it was either like bum around L.A. doing that kind of stuff or move back to Atlantic City and get a job in a casino, which I would be close to family who still – you know, with my dad just having passed away a year before – still, you know, needed me around. So I figured I'd do that and went back to the Taj. Luckily, hadn't burned any bridges there and got a job because of the advanced degree doing surveillance instead of security, which is kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'd love to hear about that. Well, basically, okay, so doing security, you have – you're assigned different tasks. So on a shift, for part of the shift, you might be – carrying chips out from the main cage to the tables to do table fills. Um, Back then when they had coin machines, you might be doing hopper fills and carrying out bags of coins. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might be standing on a post making sure nobody under 21 comes in, you know, or you might be kind of roving the property, which was something I started doing a lot of because I was able to, uh, there was one kind of really important event in my career as a security officer one of the other security guards got her foot run over by one of the carts that towed the coins back when they did these big impress runs uh-huh. bring so her foot got run over and one of the supervisors is like all right you and i i was there with her so i saw it as like, right, i need you to write a report so i'm like well i have pretty crappy handwriting can i type it he's like he's like whoa you mean you type <laughs> Yeah, I type. So typed up the report, and it's like, oh, this is actually you know written in English. It's coherent. <laughs> yeah. So one of the jobs you could do was being a general area rover, where pretty much your job was to walk around and wait for something bad to happen, and, and then respond, up. and then write up the incident report. Ah. So a lot of it was finding sweet little old ladies who would skip their lunch because they were so excited about playing Wheel of Fortune slots, and then stood up and got dizzy and fell down. Right taking them to the nurse to get 
their vitals checked out and everything, which was, you know, it met a lot of really nice ladies that way, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> just generally, you know, responding to anything that happens. So pretty much I was doing a lot of that. So kind of, it's just an awesome feeling having the, having the run of the entire property, you know, um, sometimes I would, when I was in the tower, I'd go out and check the roof of the Taj there and just stand up, you know, whatever, 35 stories up or whatever, just looking out and, seeing what's going on. It's kind of, it was really cool, really cool job, you know, and kind of going all through the back of the house and seeing all the kitchens and everything, you know, to this day, whenever I go into one of the big casino kitchens back of the house, that smell, right. you know, around three or four o'clock, I just feel like, you know, Hey, I'm assigned to general area Rover again. And my first break is going to be in an hour. And isn't it awesome? <laughs> so, you know, so I had that experience where it's just like the entire place, you know, you're interacting with people all the time. It's awesome. You know, surveillance is very, very different. In surveillance, you can see everything, but you're confined to this little room right. with, you know, maybe two to four other guys. Uh-huh. And, you know, if it's two to four other guys you're getting along with, it's like the most fun job in the world. <laughs> Basically, it's like Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's like you're watching TV and making fun of people. And right. da, 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 da. When, when, you, when you're not getting along with the guys, it's like death. Yeah. It's I like, imagine. I mean, you're sitting there staring at this tiny black and white monitor, usually black and white, a lot of the cameras then, and just watching that timestamp tick over. Mm-hmm. And just like, uh, it's so, so it's, it's a totally different job. Um, you get to see everything, but you don't really get to interact with people as much. And how long would those shifts be? Like eight hours? For, I, got, I was on grave shift, which their concession to making you work grave shift was making it a power shift. So it was four 10-hour shifts. Ah. So I'd blow in at, I think it was, it was 9.40 in the morning and um, basically come in, set up swing shift for tape change, then cycle around the casino floor, which that was fortunate. We did get to walk around a little bit in that, you know, got about a half hour to walk around, um, and then come back up to the room and, you know, get in there at 20 of 12, you know, really start our shift. After we'd help them with tape change and everything, we'd totally take over at 20 of 12. Uh, spend the next eight hours in there with a little bit of time for lunch, um, which no matter what time of day it is, if you're in a casino, your meal is lunch. So a little <laughs> bit of time for lunch at like three in the morning. And uh, that was – and then leave at 7.40 in the morning. So that was pretty much it. And what was the, the – in terms of the, the camera technology, I mean how in – that, in that era, how, how good was it? I mean was it uh, – you know, was it uh, sort of – depressingly bad average uh it's just i mean as a just as viewing it what what, did, what was your impression it was about average you know some cameras better were better than others you know we had some really old ptz uh pan tilt zoom cameras that would just take forever it's like cranking it manually cranking it. <laughs> it's just like oh my god this thing is turning so slow we had a couple of newer ones that were really zippy like pew pew you know shooting around mm-hmm. so it was kind of cool you know but basically it was about, you know, kind of my first three months there, I was really, I was learning everything and kind of soaking it in. And after that, I think I kind of hit a plateau Yeah. where it's like, this is fun, but I'm not, I, there's really no place else to take this unless right. I wait, you know, five to 10 to 20 years for the guy above me to retire or leave. And then I could go put in for supervisor. And it's kind of like, mm, not, not so much going on there. So yeah. by about 
after about maybe nine or ten months of that, I started to get a little restless. Yeah, and so then what did happen next? So what happened was I had – okay, back in 1997, I'd gone to the International Conference on Gambling and Risk-Taking, which was in Montreal that year. It was my first academic conference, and it was put on by Bill Eatington and Judy Cornelius and the folks up at the up at University of Nevada, Nevada Reno. Right. right. So it was my first academic conference because Eric, who was my dissertation chair – was also teaching the seminar I was taking. Basically, he said it was a seminar on how to write papers and doing a research paper. And he said, well, if you get, you know, no matter what grade I give you for the class, if you present this at a conference or get it published, I'll give you an A. Hmm. So even though I already had, had an A, I'm like, hey, I want to do that. So I decided to apply and went and did that. So it was my first academic conference experience, and it was awesome. Kind of one of the neatest people I met there was a guy named Russell Barnhart, who is – was one of the great eccentrics I've ever known. Really? Just he had somehow he had this independent income, he had a trust fund or something, and basically he lived in Manhattan and spent almost all of his time in the New York Public Library doing research about gambling. And it's just one of the great kind of I don't want to call him a dilettante because he was really serious about it, but kind of non-professional historians to look at gaming. And, you know, one of the coolest documents I've ever seen is, is his autobiography and memoirs, which is on file up, up at UNR Special Collections. He's just a really just crazy guy, just completely eccentric and really interesting. And so I met him, met a lot of other people. I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, studying gambling is kind of neat. So that kind of confirmed me going – you know, sticking with that path in the dissertation. So that conference is held every three years. In 2000, they had another one at MGM Grand. Uh-huh. And I fe- it was in, I think, September or October. I think September. And I figured, well, you know what? This is I'd, – I'd applied for some academic jobs, didn't get them. And I'm like, you know, I don't think the academic thing is going to work out. I'm going to stick with the casino industry, and I think I'm going to try to get a job doing some kind of community affairs, government relations, that kind of stuff where uh-huh. I can use research background. And actually, I talked to some folks you know, in Atlantic City about that, which I'll get to in a minute. Remind me. It's kind of a funny story. But – um, decided, you know what, like the last thing I'll do as an academic, I'm going to go out to this conference and present a paper and I'm going to drop off a copy of my dissertation printed on acid-free paper at special collections. So the world has a record that I, you know, tried to do an academic study of gambling right? and it will be here forever and that'll be cool. Um, even though your dissertation is also on file at the library with the Library of Congress, I just thought it'd be neat. Right. So I went down there to Special Collections to drop that off, you know, and it was very big. And like, all right, well, here it is, and said hi to everybody, um, who everyone had been really nice to me when I'm doing my research. And they said, you know, um, Susan, who had been running the gaming center, retired, and we're advertising for her position. You know, you might want to think about applying. So I'm like, all right. Uh, whatever. So I took the flyer with me, the job ad with me, and I went back to Atlantic City and, you know, was talking to some folks. I actually talked to a president at another property who I'd met and who said she was really impressed with what I was doing and said, all right, you know, we'll get you a job. Call HR. So I called HR and kind of said, all right, yeah, I'm looking for whatever you have. And they're like, well, you know, you can be a VIP host. <laughs> so I'm like, I need, you know, I've got this background. The, 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 right. You'll be VIP. What do I do for that? Huh? Well, you know, you set up limo reservations and work with restaurant stuff. I'm like, well, you know, that's not what I got a PhD to do, even right. though it's, it, it, and part of me said, you know, this sounds like it's kind of a cool job. Sure. 
be But you probably out. would be the only VIP host with a PhD in the yeah, history of game, maybe, casino gambling. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't, like I said, a lot of people, it's not the first career for That's it's true. So, so I'm like, all right, you know, yeah, let's see. So I decided, um, you know what? Then I got to the point where I'm going I'm to I'm apply for this job at UNLV. Basically, it's going to be a free trip out to Vegas for me because they pay your way out there. and I'll go out there. I'll let them ask me questions and whatever, but there's no way I'm going to move to Vegas and take a job out there because I really wanted to stay in Atlantic City. Uh-huh. You know, there's no way. Uh, so I go out there, see kind of driving in, you know, um, getting, I think taking a cab to my hotel and which was the Amerisuites. Now it's called something else, but it was called the Amerisuites then on the corner of Harmon and Paradise, caddy cornered from the Hard Rock. Right. You know, taking the cab there, I just remember looking up at the strip and thinking, eh, whatever. Hmm. In my mind, like, this doesn't impress me. And the next thought in my head was, yeah, I could live here. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally handle living here. Um, went to the interview, was totally blown away. They just, they, were putting the finishing touches on this new library that they'd built. And, you know, they showed me like, all right, this would be your office. I'm like, oh my God, it's an office. It's got a window (laughs) strip. It's got a door, you know? And because before I went, I kind of made this list of demands of things that I wanted. I'm like, all right, I want an office with a door. Um, You know, I don't want to have to ask to take a personal break every time I've got to go to the bathroom. It's like just a list of stuff that was totally misguided. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, oh, my God, they've got an office with a door. So I came home, you know, had a talk with my mom about it. And, you know, she was very encouraging and said, no, you know, if this is what you want to do, do it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this for two years. And um, left the Taj again. But this time I'm like, you know what, guys, I'm not saying I'm not coming back. And uh, so I just said, all right. Bye for now. Consider it. I'm going on a really long personal. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm, I've left because stranger things have happened that I could end up back, back here. So left there, uh, loaded my stuff into my Civic, drove out, and started the job at UNLV, uh, which was kind of, you know, actually, oh, I, I skipped over the, my best part, which was my complete, you know, dry, flying on the plane, I just had this kind of panic attack where I'm like, you know what? I know nothing about library collections and building collections and all this other important stuff that you need to do. And uh-huh. I have no idea what's going to happen, but that's okay. Cause they're not going to hire me. So a couple of, couple of weeks after I'm there, I get a call um, from the Dean of the libraries offering me a job running the gaming center. And I, he tells me, right, this is the job. This is what the salary is. And again, this is what an idiot I am, an awful negotiator. <laughs> I, I asked him, and the dean then was a guy named Ken Marks, just really, he was described to me as the, a ship's captain who knows where every bolt and rivet on the ship is. Okay. How it should be. So kind of imagine almost like a Captain Picard type, uh-huh. you know, that kind of gravitas. Right. And so he calls me up to say, we'd like to offer you this job. This is the salary. So I say, well, um, you think I could hold out for any more money? <laughs> <laughs> There's this, what felt like a 10-second pause. He says, no, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, I guess, I guess I'll take the job then. <laughs> you know? Obviously, if you're trying to be a smart negotiator, so right. wait, I have to see and to get back to me. So I'm just, right. right, yeah, I'll take it. You know, whatever you, whatever you want to pay me, I'll take it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, which is already more than doubling my salary in surveillance anyway. So I'm like, Pfft. That's great. 
Yeah, but it w- wasn't a very big salary, but surveillance is even less. So, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the story of how I took the job. So I moved out there and just started to learn a lot about gaming and casinos in Las Vegas. So I want to talk about your, your other books, but before we do that, since we're talking about the, the, um, the Center for Gaming Research, I, I, I'm not sure if people know exactly what that is or what you do. Can you That's- explain it? That's a really good question. Kind of one of the most common things that happens is somebody will call me and then say, what do you do? So um, basically there's – I used to say there was three things, but I think it's grown to more than three. So I don't want to do the Spanish Inquisition thing. I'll say there's a lot of things. I'm just going to add them as I go through them. First of all is build the physical gaming collection, which is a collection of books, pamphlets, journals, academic books – how to win guides going back to about the 16th or 17th century. Oh, wow. But today, you know, we have an original manuscript of Cardano's uh, autobiography where he talks about gambling, you know, back in the 16th century. Uh-huh. So we've got some really neat stuff here. Um, a lot of it's, you know, we have a lot of French mathematicians in the 19th, 17th, 18th century, I mean, 18th century French mathematicians writing about gambling in French, which is great for scholars of French, but not for everybody else. We've got a lot of really (laughs) interesting stuff like that. Um, We've also got a couple of collections of materials from casinos. Uh The Harris collection is probably the most famous. It's all the stuff that Harris collected, including Bill Harris photo albums from the 60s and 70s. Uh, Got... The Stardust Collection, after the Stardust closed, all that stuff ended up down here. Uh You've got uh, the Mandalay Resort Group Collection, after they closed. Basically, I got a phone call from Alan Feldman saying, this stuff is either going into a dumpster or we'd love you to have it. So I'm like, all right, it'll come. Um, Bring it down to UNLV. And kind of the funny backstory for that is that... The day that that happened, I was out of the office for something. I forget where I was, but I was out of the office. So I was doing it via phone and just said, okay, bring it to the loading dock. You know, at that, at that day, there was a faculty meeting, and my director, the director of special collections, had apparently just finished telling the dean that, oh, yeah, we've got everything under control and there won't be any surprises from Dave. When somebody <laughs> bursts into the meeting and says, oh, there's a truck backing, backing up with like 100 boxes here. And they say, Dave said it should come here. It's kind of funny. Um, there's some really cool stuff in that collection because it's everything basically from Mandalay's corporate you know, um, PR office going mm-hmm. back to the Circus Circus days. Wow. So it, that's been a really good resource. So we have a lot of stuff like that. You know? So on one hand, I'm building the physical collection. On the other hand, I'm building the website, which is still a work in progress 10 years later. Um, you know, 10 years ago, actually 10 and a half years ago now, when I started the job, there was no website. Right. And one of the things I said is, you know what? I don't think this internet fad is going to end anytime <laughs> soon. And I think that people are going to be looking for information more and more on the internet. So I want to put as much stuff up here as I can. So I started out by doing some exhibits of cool stuff we had. Uh, the El Rancho Vegas one was the first exhibit I did. And I kind of learned as I did it. And now I think that one's probably in the third or fourth um, my third or fourth kind of reboot of it, kind of making the graphics a little bit less, you know. 1998 looking and more <laughs> contemporary. So I've kind of evolved those exhibits over time. Um, then I st- then I decided to start doing stuff more stuff with statistics. So we've got a big bank of statistics that you know back in 2001, none of these were online. They're all offline. You know, mm-hmm. right. So what I've been doing is trying to get as much of that stuff 
online as I can. Um, part of that's doing summaries of the gaming, Nevada Gaming Control Board's monthly releases because they've got a ton of information, which is good. But the bad part is they've got a ton of information. Right. So kind of digesting that and kind of saying, hey, this is what you need to know. Because frankly, I found that a lot of the analysis, analysis of that is just spin from either casino folks or analysts who seem to have a vested interest in saying, you know, the, the, the sky is the limit and everything's looking up. So I just want to kind of create a resource for saying, well, no, let's look at the numbers historically actually and see where we're going. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's another big part. So kind of the website's another big area and I'm always looking to grow that. So if I'm just uh, an average Joe, I'm not a UNLV student, I'm not a uh, PhD candidate, uh, mm-hmm. looking for research materials. Other than the website, is there anything for, for me to come and see? Do you guys do public showings of any of your materials, or, or is it the kind of thing where it's uh, more focused on the academic side? No, I mean, there's, a, there's everything, you know, and if you, we have a lot of people coming in here looking for, you know, doing picture stuff. If you look at the Cosmopolitan's uh, P3 Commons, right. see those big pictures of Vintage Vegas, those are our pictures. Oh, okay. They just used, you know, um, a lot of other people, a lot of other businesses around Vegas use them too. Um, so yeah, a lot of people use it. A, a lot of just general industry researchers use our stuff. You don't have to be academic. It's a public, you know, it's a state, partially state funded library and we're a public university. So it's open to the public nine to five, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, nine to nine, Tuesday, Thursday. Um, pretty much anybody can come in. It helps if you know what you're looking for, so look on the website. Sure. But if you want to come in and listen to oral histories of, you know, people like Benny Binion, Mm-hmm. You can do that. You know, you can do that, which is the awesome thing, um, which leads me to the next area of stuff that I do, yeah. which is collecting oral histories. And, you know, this is one of the areas that I really want to build because there's a lot of really interesting people here in Vegas and in the industry that I think their stories need to be recorded because otherwise you get basically um, Vegas is better when the mob ran Vegas. Right. And, you know, <laughs> Bugsy Siegel is – the awesome, and that's all we need to know, and that's your history. You know, instead of re- talking to people and about like, hey, what was it like, you know, collecting debts in the '60s? You know, when you were working for the Dunes or whoever, you know, what was that actually like? You right. know, uh, what was credit play actually like? So that that's kind of cool. So the oral history is an, is another component. Um, the other one that I've been really working on building is the um, fellowships. Uh-huh. which I started four years ago. I managed to scrounge together some money and we're still looking for a naming opportunity donor. So if somebody out there has deep pockets and would like to name a fellowship um, that lets people come to Vegas to study gambling, that would be awesome. You know, basically this goes out to either doctoral candidates or postdocs or even more senior researchers who are looking at gambling. Mm-hmm. And we brought people over from as far away as London Mm-hmm. You know, the UK, um, lots of really prestigious universities all around. That's really it's, – it's great because they get to come in. It's kind of getting that new infusion of DNA into the gene pool because, right. you know, they're coming in. They're not gambling people, but they're smart people and right. they want to study it. So they're bringing their knowledge to it. So that's been a lot of real success. You know, as a spinoff of that, I've been running an event series where I have them give talks, which I've also recorded and done podcasts for. Right. So kind of that's trying to get as much out of that bang for the buck as I can in that. Um, that's what we're doing. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a lot of good stuff. Um, I want to talk 
a little bit more. I, <laughs> I have a lot of questions, but I, I don't, we don't have unlimited time. So I want to talk more about your other books, and I also want to talk about the book you've been working on. And then I've got a couple of other um, random questions. But let's let's talk about your – we talked about Suburban Xanadu, but you have two other books published. Is that right? Roll the Bones yeah. and Cutting the Wire? Yeah. Um, can you briefly uh, explain what those are and um, you know, sort of where in your timeline they, uh, they, they appeared? Yeah, so Suburban Xanadu came out in 2003. When it came out, 2003, early 2004, I started working on Cutting the Wire. And the big news then um, had been internet gambling. And this was kind of this growing thing. It was about five years old at that time. And I'm like, and I was saying, hey, you know, I'd like to kind of capture the history of this in its infancy and look at what where it developed out of historically and looking specifically at the wire act and what this legal framework that the justice department was using to try to prosecute online gambling and you know what the deal with that was and a lot of it came out of the um, march madness prosecutions of march 98 and jay cohen um, who was the only guy who was ended up doing jail time for that um, out of that he came back faced trial and went to jail so Started to do research in that, and pretty much that is a traditional academic monograph where I had a question, you know, how do Americans approach legal gambling? And I found out, well, they're very ambiguous about it. And on one hand, they'll outlaw the business of gambling, but not the act of gambling itself. And that's where the Wire Act comes in, and that's why we're applying this telegraph era legislation to the internet. So it kind of, so that was, that's that book. Uh, Roll the Bones was a totally different thing. You know, I was still working on, um, so that came out in 2005. I was still working on that in 2004 when I got a call from a guy named Brendan Cahill, who I'd known at Penn, who was an editor at Gotham, who'd seen a write-up for Suburban Xanadu and said, you know, um, I work for Gotham Books, which is an imprint of Penguin, mm-hmm. Penguin Putnam. And, I think it would be a really cool book to do to do the history of gambling throughout the whole world. And I'm like, well, you know, that's – I don't know so much about the global stuff. You know, maybe a history of gambling in the U.S., but that sounds like a lot of research. And I'm not really not that interested in doing that project. Um, I've got – I forget what project I wanted to work on, and, but I had something else, I'm sure. So I'm like, yeah, I don't want it. So then he, he called me back and said, well, you know, this is the advance we're prepared to offer you. And I'm like, all right, um, send me the contract. <laughs> I'm doing it. So for the next year, kind of 2000, like most of 2005, I was researching Roll the Bones just at breakneck pace. It was kind of like, you know, the example that I used in my mind was when they're designing, when they're building a building and they're, you know, kind of laying the concrete on the first floor and they're still designing the 10th floor mm-hmm. as they're building it. Right. That's kind of what it was like with that. It was like, <laughs> I was kind of like, all right, boom, I've got to get this done. I've got a deadline. I've got to get this done. So did a lot of research would love, you know, th- I'd love to revisit that book sometime, you know, 10 years from now when I've got a lot more knowledge uh-huh. and have the time to go to different libraries and do much more detailed in-depth research. I think that would be interesting, but you know, basically for what it is, which is a guide to the history of gambling for the general audience, I think it's pretty good, you know, and I ended up cutting about a hundred pages, pages out of the manuscript to make it more readable wow. and less. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of stuff that ended up in the cutting room floor for that, which is, a, which is kind of the way pretty much everything I write ends up like that. Usually, kind of like a fighter dropping weight for, for a match. It's mm-hmm. like probably 10 to 15% is what, I, is what I usually cut in that last revision. But there was substantial, probably about 
Actually, that might be around 15%. So it's just the same. It just felt like a lot. Yeah. So yeah, so that, so Cutting the Wire came out in 2005. Um, academic, academic book geared towards academic audience. Um, Roll the Bones came out in 2006 geared towards a popular audience. Right. So those, those, that's how those two books came about. Uh, and, and in the time between then and now, at some point you started working on a new book, uh, which is, um, you know, f- follows a specific person. Uh, when, can you tell us a little bit about that sort of, and where, it, where it is at this point and sort of where you think it may be or hope it may be in the future? Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I decided, you know, I was thinking, what do I want to work on next? And I said, you know what, well, who is the most important person in Vegas gaming history who, Nobody's written a book about, you know, because people have written books of, you know, there's biographies of Steve Wynn. Well, tons of people. terrible one. Yeah, but it's already been written about. So yeah. people can say, yeah, whatever, you know, and I figure Steve Wynn is around. He'll get right. his right. story out, you know. So who hasn't been written about? And I'm like, you know, well, Jay Sarno, he seems like an interesting cat. Nobody's written about him. You know, he built Caesar's Palace, built Circus Circus, wanted to build Grandissimo, which would have been the first mega resort, you know, with uh, 6,000 rooms. And, you know, nobody's really written about him. And I wonder what he's like. So I decided to start writing about him, got in touch with this family. And again, did this kind of the totally wrong way. Uh, the right way is that I put together a proposal and shop it around to uh, publishers. Right. And... I was so sure this was such a can't-miss idea. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to start researching and writing it now because you never know. You know, Some of these people are old, and I'm not going to wait. So kind of jumped right in, started writing it, talked to a lot of the family members, talked to all of his kids, You know, got interviews with all of them, interviewed his sister-in-law up in New York, a wonderful lady, um, interviewed one of his sisters, interviewed a lot of his cousins and nieces and nephews. Kind of the coolest interview that Debbie Munch from Caesar set up for me was Evil Knievel, um, which wow. ended up being a couple of weeks before he died. Wow. And he just basically said, you know, I remember at one point he said, well, you know, Jay was like a brother to me and I, you know, wherever I'm going next, he's going to be the first person I, I see. Huh. I'm like, oh, you know, Evil, don't talk like that. You know, you're going to be around forever, you know, because <laughs> um, at that time it seemed like he would. He just seemed indestructible. And right. that, you know, interviewing Evil Knievel was kind of like, ooh, this is Evil Knievel. That must have been awesome. It was really awesome. It was kind of overwhelming because I'm like, oh, so. Um, but he gave me some great stuff. Uh, he gave me some really great stuff. Another guy who I interviewed who's not with us anymore is Bob Stupak, uh-huh. who was also, I mean, that was totally mind-blowing. You know, it's like you go, go over to this house with him and he's chain-smoking and his buddy there, his kind of gopher guy, lights up a cigarette and he's, you know, what the F are you doing, you effing moron? You can't <laughs> effing smoke in here. Go outside. It's just totally obstreperous, you know, every adjective you can think of, but right. just a fascinating guy. Just a fascinating guy. And uh, some, you know, someday I think I'm going to take some excerpts of that interview and publish them somewhere because they're pretty, it's pretty interesting kind of him. I got him to talk a little, about, a little bit about himself too, which I wish he'd done more of because it's kind of interesting. So talk to him. So basically did a lot of research, um, wrote up, got about 75% through with one draft, gave it to my agent who shopped it around to people, and some of the readers who read it said it's too dry, it's too academic. So, like, kind of blew that up and took a totally different approach, which basically was, if I was making a movie about this, what would uh-huh. I want to be like? Interesting. So, you know, instead of start, you know, originally the plan was to have the opening vignette at the opening of Caesar's Palace and then flashback to his parents' 
um, growing up in the shtetls of Poland slash Russia and kind of tracing the family history and da, 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 da. instead um, now it starts at the Fountain Blue 1957 where he's playing gin rummy and then later on that night he walks into the lib- the lobby designed by Morris Lapidus and sees this woman who he decides is going to be his wife and Mar- ends up getting her to accept his proposal three days later <laughs> just because he's so persistent and will wow. not give up. So yeah, I mean, so, and it kind of continues like that with him. I, I handle some of the family stuff in some flashbacks with, with how he grew up and his time in World War II and all that, but mostly it's him kind of from 1957 to 1984. And basically kind of my question is, in writing the book was, you know, you, you have this kid who grew up in St. Joe, Missouri, in the middle of the depression, you know, totally impoverished family lived practically next to a packing house, you know, bad, bad start. And he ends up dying in the finest suite in Caesar's palace, you know, the greatest casino in the world. Right. With the woman half his age. Right. And how does this kid go from, you know, St. Joe and working odd jobs and pitching pennies to, to that point? How, how do you get him there? So that was that's kind of the narrative thrust of the book is is what he's doing and kind of looking at him personally and his own struggles with addiction and, and a compulsive personality and the changes in Vegas as he's going through it from about sixty one to eighty four and how Vegas changes. Uh, but it's been a tough a tough publishing environment. I mean, is that is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, um, it's just. I mean, it, it seems like. Um, uh, just as a, as a reader, clearly the world of publishing is changing quickly and, you know, a lot of the older models are kind of being blown up and rebuilt and, and we're sort of in this transitionary period where maybe it's a little bit harder to get certain things done. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it either that I've, I've not been able to find a publisher yet, even though I'm about 95% done now, I've got a little bit of, of two, I got a little bit of one chapter and a little bit more another chapter to finish up. But other than that, I'm pretty much done with, with this draft. Well, I wouldn't be ashamed. You know? I mean, I think I read yeah. that that uh, J.K. Rowling was uh, turned down by every single publisher for Harry Potter. So clearly yeah. there are a lot of success stories with books that uh, people just didn't see the vision. Well, the most galling thing is for every J.K. Rowling who, you know, eventually people see the, the worth of her of her work, there's got to be – a hundred thousand hacks who really didn't deserve to get published. Right. There's stuff is crap. <laughs> so it's just like that that kind of dilemma of geez, which one am I? You know, <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting story. And even, you know, no matter what my flaws as a writer are, I think it's an interesting enough story that, you know, hopefully I'll find somebody. So uh, my agents kind of working on a couple things right now, but if that doesn't work, I'm going to work with a couple people who've been very friendly to me about this and get it out there on my own. Yeah, because you know, I believe in it that much that I think it's a great story. Well, and I, you know, I, I we've heard a lot of interesting success stories from people doing self-publishing. I mean, clearly now the technology exists to make it feasible, whereas previously, you know, distribution made it impossible in any real scale. But uh, things have changed, so who knows? It may end up being a blessing in disguise. Yeah, you know, and I think it's a story that people like. You know, I definitely think it has a lot of potential because I mean, he just did some crazy crazy stuff you know um offered the biggest bribe in irs history his <laughs> his lawyer was oscar goodman and he got away with it 
And then he, him and Oscar ended up suing the IRS for the bribe money back. <laughs> and they won. Oh, man. Like you, can't, you, couldn't write, you, couldn't, you couldn't write a novel that had all these twists in it. You know, just all the stuff that he, that he does. You know, all the stuff that he does. You know, being best friends with Jimmy Hoffa and Alan Dorfman and the Teamsters stuff. You uh-huh. know? And, that's, and I kind of look at the changes in Vegas where he's kind of got his vision of what he wants Vegas to be. And the town shifts from under his feet, you know. So by 1984, it's not, you know, you don't have, you can't call Jimmy Hoffa to get money. You've got to have Terry Lanny right. or Glenn Schaefer go to Wall Street to get the money. So right. that's kind of his, his tragedy right there. So I think it's a really interesting story looking at a really interesting slice of Vegas history that I think a lot of people would find good. Well, I, I am sure uh, we'll see it soon and we look forward to it. Um, one of the things that you were, uh, that you were very famous for um, has been your casino carpet gallery. Yeah. Uh, to the point where people were calling you and asking you um, f- to send them carpet. Uh, so I, you know, I'm just, I'm wondering about the origin of that. How did that start? This is another one of my, you know, ideas that I thought was a great idea, but then turned out to be not such a great idea, but maybe it's not such a bad idea after all. You know, basically it's like, you know, growing up in Atlantic City, seeing a lot of casinos, I'm like, man, casino carpet's always really loud and cheesy. So I'm like, yeah, wouldn't it be funny if I took pictures of it and put it up on the internet? And it just kind of grew from there and became a, I don't know. Not an obsession because I was never really obsessed with it, but just if I was in a casino, I'd take out my camera and take some pictures. So it kind of grew from there. And, you know, having that academic mindset, I'm like, well, instead of just posting pictures randomly, I'm going to systematically do it in a gallery and have, you know, da, 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 da. and, you know, that's kind of been fun. That's, that's been a lot of fun. Um, but uh, getting the calls for people wanting carpet and just their indignation when I won't sell them carpet is incredible. Even though I put up banner ads for some of my books in there, uh-huh. make it clear, all right, buy, I want you to buy something. You know, I'm not putting this up here for free. You can, if you want to buy something, go ahead and buy something. They still don't get, they still don't, don't get that, which it's, is cool. It's very funny how some people just, I don't think really understand the internet. I get emails sometimes, well, not sometimes, fairly frequently asking, about booking at my hotel and, you know, if I'm going to be open on Wednesday and, you know, I'm just like, who are you talking to? <laughs> this does not my, make any sense. <laughs> my favorite email I got was from a guy who wanted, who was uh, putting together his wedding and want, wanted me to work his wedding, <laughs> um, which is like, awesome. I'll give my seven things you should know about casino speech at the reception. I'm sure that'll go over great. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's so, yeah, I, I love those things. It is kind of funny. I got your number. You know, I Googled, I Googled it and it gave me your number. I'm like, well, that's, you know, Google might not be right in this case. People are so, amazing. Yeah. All right. I want to close with one, with one question. Um, do you feel like the gaming industry cares enough about its history? Uh, do you feel like they are enough of a partner with institutions like the Center for Gaming Research in preserving their history um and you know and not just preserving it but learning from it well you know i think the completely self-serving thing for me to say is like yes they need to do more and they can make tax deductible grants you know they can give money you know to UNLV to to fund that which i would love to see but i'm not going to you know put my you know cup out there and, and beg for money that way you know i think what concerns me more is the fact that they're not doing more of this stuff internally I think a lot of casinos don't pay much attention to record keeping and maintaining a corporate history 
internally that they should, which is really important because, you know, a lot of times I'll get semi-panicked calls from people saying, hey, we're celebrating our whatever anniversary. (laughs) Do you have pictures of us? It's like, well, no, because you never saved them and you never gave them to us. You know, on the other hand, uh, like Harris, it's Bill Harris' 100th birthday this year. Right. And we've got tons of pictures of Bill Harris. And we're working with them, you know, pretty closely in doing that. So it's kind of like I wish the casinos would do more of this stuff internally. You know, not that they have to pay UNLV to do it. I'd I'd really like to see more casinos work with us to do oral history programs where you talk to some of your people who've been working there for 20, 30 years and say, hey, how's it changed? You know, because those people aren't going to be around forever and things are changing, you know. And I guess the the thing I would say to them is, how do you want to be remembered? You know, do you want Paul Carr or whoever else is going to come in and write something about Vegas for five minutes? Do you know, do you want them telling your history to the world? Do you want that to be the only record of, of, what, of what you've done? You know, wouldn't you rather tell your own story and save that, which is basically what we do here. It's like we are saving the story of the gaming industry. So that, I think that, that's what I'd do. I'd really like to see this get higher in the radar. And I know they've got you know, a dozen fires to put out every day, but I think right. this is something that everybody should do just for the sake of it. I think it's good business because they're going to need this stuff. And it's, it's also good just for history. If you could grant yourself uh, one um, one uh, line item on your list of would be projects where you know you, you maybe you the the um, university university can't fund it, what would it be? I'd like to do a really massive oral history program um, on the strip, talking to all talking to all kinds of casino employees and talking to longtime players too. You know, that's kind of one of the things I'd like to do to document how Vegas is changing. Because I think, you know, there's, we've got stuff, you know, basically we've got the statistics, we've got the press releases, but there's a big gap in between those. And I think oral history is probably the best way to fill that gap right now um, because people aren't writing letters. It's not like we're going to get the correspondence right. of Jim Murren. You know, because he's not writing letters to other people. So it's not like if we were studying the history of General Motors in the 30s, you know, there's all those sources. You know, we have to create the sources, and this is one of the ways we can do it. Do you think that social media changes that at all in as much as some of that conversation is now public? I think it does. You know, I think it'll be interesting to see how it's going to impact stuff. You know, I'd like to see what people do, you know, what kind of projects you could do a year from now looking back at the opening of the Cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. And saying, well, how can we track that, and how how well does that stuff hold up? You know, I'd I'd like to see that. Um, so certainly, I think that does change it. The great thing about about social media is that it, it does put everything into the public record. So instead of people just sending their complaint letter to the rooms department and it's it's in a filing cabinet in risk management somewhere, now it's public. Right. So that's kind of cool. You get that window into what's going on. Right. Dr. David Schwartz, thank you so much for spending the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was a really great talk. 